Hey, Grace Church, this is Pastor Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Norton. It's great to be with you today. Uh, I think we'd all agree this has been an interesting year. And I, I thought in case you may have forgotten what 2020 has been like, I, I thought I would give you a few reminders. Uh, what if 2020 is just a trailer of 2021? <laughs> what if 2020 was a swing? 2020 every second, but wait, there's more. And, and just a little nod to the 80s uh, coming up next in 2020. Uh, one of my favorites, if 2020 was a bag of chips, that, that orange juice uh, toothpaste combination, perfect. And then again, one of my favorites, uh, one star out of five, very bad, would not recommend. I enjoyed uh, seeing those. I thought I'd give us a few reminders. Uh, this morning, we, we've come to the end of Peter's first letter. And as I think back as to when we started First Peter, and what, what perfect time for a series like this, and, and just the, the powerful and beautiful truths of, of this letter. Peter has encouraged us to reorient ourselves and rearrange our priorities around the good news of Jesus, the gospel. And through Jesus, we have this living hope while living here. Now we can talk about 2020 and how hard it's been, but the reality is, I, I've been thinking about this, it's not all a loss because if we're willing and open, I believe God has some things that maybe he wants to reveal in us, to, to teach us. And though church may look a lot different than it did nine months ago, uh, the reality is Jesus is still building his church. Um, Peter reminds us in the midst of hardship and suffering that we're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy and that we've been bought from an empty way of life, forgiven, redeemed, promised, imperishable life, cemented in a certain hope that can never spoil, perish, or fade. And those are great truths for hard times. And we remember Peter wrote to scattered, persecuted followers of Jesus through what is now modern-day Turkey. And he, he challenges them, encourages them to live for Christ in a hostile world. And so he pours courage into these spiritual refugees by encouraging them, encouraging them to stand fast and stand firm in hard times. Now we've come to the last part of this letter. He's, he's finished his main message. In fact, uh, so he could have easily concluded the letter at the end of chapter 4 when he said, So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. He could have stopped right there. But there's more. <laughs> Peter's not finished. Uh, when Jennifer and I were dating in college, it was before cell phones and, and all that. So if we wanted to communicate, if we wanted to talk to each other, we were like four and a half hours away from each other. We would we'd call each other on the phone. Um, those were the days when you got long distance bills. Um, and so her dad would get the bill and he's like, you can't call Jonathan anymore. And she'd be like, dad, but I'm investing in my future. I'm investing in our relationship. And ah, he didn't buy that. So. We ended up writing a lot of letters. Well, the interesting thing about a letter, especially as a college student, you know, you don't want to use too much paper. So you use a piece of paper and I'd write down all my thoughts. And, you know, as I'm signing my name, Love Jonathan, 
I'm thinking, oh, I forgot to tell her this, and I'd squeeze it into the bottom, and oh, I need to remember to tell this and write it up the sides. And by the time I was done, it was like this huge letter puzzle. Um, I feel like that's what Peter's doing here in chapter five. He's finished what he wants to say. He's completed the main body of the letter. But it's like he remembers a few more important things he wants to add. So he's like, oh yeah, P.S. Oh, and P.S.S. And P.S.S.S.S.S. You know, if, if there is such a thing. He's, he's cramming these last bits of truth on the bottom and up the sides of this manuscript to, to fill in the last few things that he wants us to know. And so in 14 verses, verses he covers at least 15 different topics. Five, excuse me, five different topics. I, I call them Peter's principles um, because I believe these five things taken together form a survival kit that helps us to live with hope while living here. So let's look at the first principle in 1 Peter chapter 5. It starts in verse 1. If you have your Bible or device, you can turn the 1 Peter uh, we're in the last chapter five, and he, he begins addressing leaders in the church, and he says, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those who are entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Here's what I think Peter's saying. Peter's saying in hard times, we need strong leaders. We need strong leaders. Have you ever been in a room where everybody thinks they're a leader? It's chaos. I mean, it's, it's, it's lots of direction with no direction. <laughs> Have you ever been in a, a room where nobody wanted to lead? Um, it's paralyzing. And as I think about the times that, that we're in, unless you were around in 1918, none of us has ever been through something like what we've been through in 2020. It's unprecedented. And so in our current culture, it's been hard to be a leader. Everyone has opinions, and no matter what, what direction the leader leads, they're wrong. In our culture, we have so many available opportunities to tell them just how wrong they really are. Uh, I think that's one reason we're going to start a conversation next week about respect. Now, we need leaders who will lead in hard times. We need leaders who respond with confident courage when the going gets tough. And in verse 1, Peter describes himself as a fellow leader, and then he turns the conversation back to Jesus. He's constantly turning the conversation back to Jesus. But Peter speaks as one who failed when the going got tough. He denied he knew Jesus. But love covers a multitude of sins, and, and we know that Jesus restores Peter. And so Peter speaks as one who's been through hardship and has had to face his own personal failures and yet realizes that in God's grace, he has a living hope for hard times. And so as he's wrapping up the letter, he wants to send encouragement to, to really, I think, some discouraged, worn out leaders of the church. 
He encourages them in verse two, the shepherd, the flock. By the way, that's, that's where we get the word or the term pastor. To shepherd the flock and watch over them in, in, with care. Really, in other words, he's saying, hey, if you lead, make sure you love people. Make sure you love the people you're leading. It's the responsibility of the leader to provide, to feed his people, to, to lead them, to protect them. God has entrusted the people he's overseeing to the pastor, the shepherd's care. The leaders are responsible for those who follow him. Can I just say how much I appreciate Pastor Dan's leadership? Uh, he and the other campus pastors have had to make some really tough calls in an ever-changing scenario. And just so you know, the, de the decisions they've made have been to provide and protect the people under their care because they love their people and they love God's church. Can I just say too, I appreciate our staff and ministry leaders and, and volunteer leaders who have leveraged a hard time to create opportunities to make much of Jesus. I love the team and the people I get to work with. I appreciate our grace group leaders who have worked hard to stay connected to the people in their groups, learning new methods of communication and, and learning to love from a distance. Uh, by the way, we're, we're gonna be officially kicking off our groups this fall, so, so stay tuned for more information. If you want to get connected, uh, either with an existing grace group or we're trying a, a virtual short-term uh, connect groups, uh, a lot of our groups will be meeting in homes or smaller. Uh, a lot of our groups will be meeting virtual, meeting online. Uh, especially in days like, like now, it's so good to just be connected and be able to talk to like-minded people. Um, that being said, the, the leaders entrusted the people under their care. When, when our boys began to drive, we found this app that allowed us to keep track of wherever they went. Uh, it was great for us. Uh, if they weren't home and we thought, man, they're running a little late, or I thought they were going to be home by now, we'd just kind of check the app and say, oh, you know, he's at Sheets, or oh, he's still at practice. Um, you know, they called it creeping. <laughs> we called it caring. <laughs> uh, as parents, you know, we shepherd, we, we lead our kids. Our job is to oversee and provide and watch over them, protect them. At the same time, teaching them to lead and make wise choices on their own. So Peter doesn't end there. He encourages leaders to be willing and watchful, to be eager to serve and, and a good examples. Godly leaders in God's church give themselves fully to the opportunity. There are servant leaders who, who lead and love their people well by being good examples because they themselves are following the chief shepherd. In other words, lead as you follow Jesus. Peter refers to this earlier in his letter when he encourages us to follow Jesus and in Jesus' steps. He says in chapter 2, verse 24, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, Jesus took our sin upon himself and paid a price that we could never pay. 
We were lost, but the shepherd found us and gave us life, gave us hope, gave us purpose. And so even in hard times, we're to follow his example of love and service, leading people as we ourselves have been found and and loved and led by Jesus. And though perhaps not recognized in this life, these spiritual leaders will receive recognition for leading well. Now, that isn't to say uh, spiritual leaders aren't without flaws, that spiritual leaders uh, aren't without sin. I like how one pastor describes the church. He says, imperfect shepherds leading imperfect sheep in the service of a perfect God who has a perfect plan. That should be such a huge encouragement for us. You see, leaders come and go. Hard times come and go. The economy goes up and down. Things change all this time. Despite all these uncertainties, the church goes on. The church rolls on because it's God's creation. It's, it's led and built by the chief shepherd. It has Jesus Christ as its head, the Holy Spirit as its power, a worldwide fellowship of believers as its family, built on the foundation of God's truth. And though beaten, scarred, and battered, it's still the church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Amen? I mean, that's awesome. We have the privilege and the opportunity to be part of this. And whether the church is in the building or under a tent or at home or on the road, as a church, we are at the very center of God's plan for this age. Unless there's people to follow, the leaders can't be effective. Uh, You can't lead if no one's following. Uh, And that leads to what Peter says next. He says in verse 5, In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Now, we typically shy away. We don't like that word submit, but I like the way Richard Foster just simply defines it. He says, It is the ability to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get our own way. It's what makes us a great team. If I'm a lineman on a football team and I refuse to to go into the huddle because I have the right to block wherever and however I want to, my team's not going to be very successful. In fact, there will be times when I'm just in the way. Instead, as a lineman, I submit to the play call of the quarterback who's submitting to the wisdom of the coach. If we're working together, we're going to get a lot more done. In other words, in hard times, we need good teammates. And I think in a lot of ways, what Peter writes here is a reflection of Hebrews 13, 17. It says, ignore your spiritual leaders and and do what you want. No, it doesn't say that. It says, obey your spiritual leaders, do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls and they are accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy, not sorrow. That would certainly not be your benefit. You see, in in hard times, unless there's unity around the leadership, the local church just begins to fracture. Unless we work as a team and function together, we become ineffective. When when each of us starts to demand our own rights, to do our own thing, and we fail to prefer others, the team just becomes a mob of opinions and preferences, and we miss the opportunity to follow Jesus together and make a difference. I'm reminded of a, of a story in the Old Testament, the, the first section of your Bible. It talks about a, a king who had a, basically inherited a group of people from his father. His father had punished them, basically put them into slavery. And, 
And now this new king, it's his responsibility. He's not sure what to do with them. And so he huddles together the leaders of the nation and he says, hey, you know, I've got this problem. I need to know what to do with these people. And tell me, what, what's your advice, wise leaders? And they, they say, you know, why don't you show them mercy? Lighten their burden. And if you do that, they'll embrace you as, as a leader. They'll embrace you as king. Well, the king really doesn't want to hear about mercy and grace, and so he turns to his, his peers, his, his friends, and he says, hey, what would you guys do? And, and they're like, hey, double down on their misery. Show them who's boss. And that's what he does. And in the end, by refusing to listen to his leaders, he splits the kingdom, and only a sliver of the people stay with him. You see, he listened to the people who told him what he wanted to hear rather than listening and trying to understand the wisdom of the experienced leaders. And and it resulted in disunity and fracture and, and more hardship. You see, good teammates work together. They listen to wise advice. They listen to coaching rather than demanding their own way. In hard times, we need strong leaders and good teammates. But then Peter huddles everyone together, the the leaders, the the young folk, the followers and teammates, and he says, all of you, every one of you, clothe clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives favor, shows favor to the humble. See, I believe humility comes from a proper understanding of God's grace toward us. Because all that we have comes from him. Peter says we're to clothe ourselves with this kind of mindset of of servanthood, of of humility. Now, I think it's fascinating. The word that Peter uses here is is actually a a very rare word with a specific meaning. It, It means to tie a piece of cloth on yourself like an apron. It's what servants did to distinguish themselves as slaves. And Peter's saying in the same way, we're to tie humility to our lives so that everyone can recognize that we're servants of Christ Jesus. And so in a sense, the apron of humility becomes our team uniform. And see, this concept is so important. Peter says it again, but in a different way. He says in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. In hard times, trust God's plan. What does it mean, it says, uh, to be under God's mighty hand? Sometimes we read that and we read it almost as we're under God's mighty fist. But it says under God's mighty hand, it's referring to God moving to deliver his people from trouble and distress. In other words, you're in good hands because you're in God's hands. I love how Phillips paraphrases this. It says, you can throw the whole weight of your anxieties on him, for you are his personal concern. I I think that's amazing. This word for anxiety comes from a root that means just to, to divide, to fracture. In fact, someone has defined worry and anxiety as a small trickle of fear that meanders through the mind until it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. What a picture. In other words, anxieties distract us from the productive things that God wants, and they consume us by diverting all of our thoughts, all of our energies into these channels of fear. 
I think that's why one of my favorite prayers of David is Psalm 86:11. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart. Give me a whole heart, a pure heart, a focused heart, one that's not anxious, that I may fear your name. And see, when we carry anxiety, we carry our fears and worries and distractions with us. They, they go wherever we go. If you've ever carried a, a heavy load for a long time, you, you know how tired you get. I've been backpacking a few times. I'm still pretty new at it, but you can tell, you can tell I'm a newbie by, by the weight of my pack. I mean, I'm the type of person that you prepare for everything. And so if one knife is good, then, then two, two knives is really good. Um, I'm a far cry from backpackers who saw their toothbrush in half just to get, few, get rid of like a half ounce or something like that. Um, the problem is, though, is I, I make my pack too heavy. And because my pack's too heavy, I'm a mile or two down the trail, and all of a sudden my shoulders start to hurt. And then my legs and my back start to hurt. And I become so distracted by the weight and the discomfort, I forget to enjoy the reason I'm even there. You know what the, the greatest feeling in the world is? Of when you've been trudging this heavy 40, 50 pound backpack on your back and you unbuckle it and unhook the pack and you toss it to the ground. It's like, whoo. And Peter says, do that. <laughs> do that, cast off, throw aside, unload your burdens, the, the distractions and worries and anxieties and, anxiety and, and, and fears onto God so that they're no longer burdening you. You see, either God carries our cares and concerns or, or we do. And if we do, we'll, we'll be divided and distracted and confused and frustrated and burdened. But if God carries the load, our focus change, changes. It says he lifts us up. Why? There's just four simple words. He cares for you. He sees you. He's with you. And isn't that the heart of the gospel the good news of Jesus, he cares for you. And so when we're going through hard times, I believe our deepest problems are, are a matter of theology, what we believe about God. Our problem revolves around the question, what, what kind of God do I believe in? Peter says he's caring and, and you're safe in his mighty hand. You can trust his plan. And, and we're like, well, I think he is and I hope he is, but many days I, I'm not really sure. But it's a question that we need to be able to answer. Uh, but how do we do this? How do we transfer our anxiety, uh, the weight of the burden from our shoulders to his hand? Paul wrote in Philippians uh, to the Philippian followers of Jesus in chapter 4, verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. You see, prayer is trust turned to God, spoken and acknowledged. It's trust that, that God cares for you, that, that you believe that. But I think this can be something that can be hard for us to understand. It's, it's not an easy truth because our plan isn't always God's plan. God cares and knows what we really need, even when we don't know what we really need. 
And so sometimes my, my, tr- my anxiety and my fear and the thing that I'm carrying is this, this great financial need. But what we really need is to learn how to live with less. Sometimes we think we need companionship, but what we really need is to pr- uh, press into Jesus and pursue a consistent relationship with him. Sometimes we think we need healing, but what we really need is to learn compassion or empathy and, and mercy for others who are suffering. Sometimes we may think we need to control the world around us, but what we really need as spiritual refugees in this world is to set apart Christ as Lord and leader of our lives. See, God will give us what we really need, and if we're followers of Jesus, though it may be hard, we're all right with that. Because he cares for me. Now, I think it's a little unfortunate the way our translations have arranged these verses, 6 and 7. They really should read as one verse, as one sentence. In fact, in the original language, there's no period behind verse 6. And it should read more like, humble yourselves, casting all your anxiety on him. I think it makes a, a, a difference in how we understand this. You see, God is the focus of both verses, and the connection is this. Humility begins with an understanding that God cares for us better than we care for ourselves. His plans are better than my plans. His ways are greater than my ways. And so in hard times, I, I need to trust myself under God's mighty hand and lean into him. We start from the assurance rooted in a history of of God's faithfulness that God really does care for us. And it's on that foundation that we humble ourselves, unloading our anxieties and fear on him. You're in good hands because you're in God's hands. Now, I imagine Peter's writing is getting smaller and smaller as he's finishing this letter and he's starting to write around the margins of of the pages, trying to get a little bit more. And he he dives into another principle in verse 8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. In hard times, stand firm in the faith. In other words, we're to cast our cares on God, but we're not to become careless. Peter warns us to be on alert for this lion-like enemy. But understand, Peter describes it as a roaring lion. Uh, Roaring lions don't sneak, they attack. Their roar comes from a confidence that they can overpower you. It's meant to intimidate. And so the point isn't Satan's subtlety, but his power. Some underestimate Satan's powers, but Satan is a source of all kinds of pain and suffering in this world. We can't ignore the potential damage that he can do in our lives. Some overestimate his power. Not not every bad thing that happens comes directly from Satan. Don't give him too much credit. Sometimes what we attribute to Satan is is really a very poor decision rooted in our own pride. You see, attributing too much power or too little power leads to either overreaction or lack of preparation. And Peter says, hey, think clearly. Be aware. 
See, I believe Satan's lion-likeness is his direct attack in suffering. Because hard times can overwhelm us in fear with pain. They can destroy our faith. They can destroy our faith in the fact that, that God cares or even exists. And that's exactly what the enemy wants. The guttural growl, the roar of the lion is the power of suffering to destroy our faith. It intimidates, it creates fear, it, it makes us unsure. You see, he's, he's, he's roaring, he's coming in for the kill. He's not there to play with you. He's not there to scratch or wound. Devour means to chew and swallow. You better be clear-minded and not distracted. And see, Peter challenges us to resist him and stand firm in the faith. In fact, I wonder if unloading our backpack full of anxieties and fears and finding ourselves in God's mighty hand might be the best place for us in times like these. And see, because Satan will look for our weakest points. That's why Peter describes him as he, he prowls about. He's, he's looking for the best time and place to attack. You see, every one of us has a weak point, and most of us have, have more than one. It could be an area of an addiction or a bad habit, a prejudice, an insecurity, a hidden sin. If, if you know what trips you up, he certainly does too. He knows just how to attack and when and where. There's a proverb that says, when you walk through the vineyard, vineyard you'll eventually eat the grapes. Don't put yourself in his hunting grounds. Be, be alert and resist him. I think, I think it's interesting. Notice Peter also says, stand firm in the faith. Now, he doesn't say stand firm in my faith or stand firm in your faith or stand firm in your leader's faith. We don't resist Satan by standing firm in our own faith or the faith of others because our faith can be weak. Instead, we stand firm in the faith. We stand firm in God's truth because the mighty hand of God is stronger than the jaws of the lion. And so resist him, stand firm. Peter continues because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Peter's saying, hey, remember, you're not alone. You're not alone in this. Remember your teammates. They're, they're suffering too. Pray for him. You see, when we find ourselves in hard times, we need strong leaders. We need good teammates. We need to trust God's plan, stand firm in the faith. At the very end, Peter will send greetings and encouragement, but before he does that, he, he concludes in verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And see, Peter sums up everything in this prayer for his readers. He's saying, in hard times, keep perspective. How do you handle hard times? Look beyond the darkness. Remember God's faithfulness. Look to his deliverance. In other words, we've got to look beyond the present because the story, the, the story we find ourselves in, it's God's story. And his story is, is bigger and substantially longer than our story in this world. Paul said it like this, that is, <clears throat> that is why we never give up. 
Though our bodies are dying, our, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that can't be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. He's saying there may be suffering now, but the healing will be forever. There might be hard times in the present, but the glory and grace of God is now and forever. The psalmist wrote it this way, Weeping may stay for the night, but it's temporary. Rejoicing comes in the morning. You see, from an eternal perspective, the hard times are temporary. Don't let them overwhelm you. In fact, Peter goes on to describe four things we can look forward to. He says, God will restore you. In other words, he repairs what's broken. God will make you strong. He'll give you what you need to endure. God will help you stand firm. He'll give you the grit and the muscle to do what needs to be done. God will make you steadfast. He will place you on solid ground. How, how does he do all that? Because Peter says he's the God of all grace, literally the God of every kind of grace. You see, if you need forgiveness, he has grace for you. If you have regret, he has grace for you. If you live in shame, he has grace, in you, grace for you. If, you. if you feel like giving up, he has grace for you. If you're suffering, he has grace for you. If you are anxious or fearful or discouraged, he has more and more and more grace for you. You see, whatever we need, whatever gift of forgiveness or reconciliation or salvation or freedom or love that we need, he has grace for us. Not only, he not only has it, he has the power to apply it to our lives. Peter's been telling us all through this letter in hard times, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your life rooted and centered and focused on Jesus. See, Peter said it this way earlier. He said, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Follow in his steps because it's in him. We have a certain living hope while living here. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for the grace that you lavish on us. Father, I thank you for strong leaders and good teammates. What a blessing. Lord, uh, we would be remiss not to think of our teammates even around the world who suffer so much more greatly than, than we do for their faith. Lord, I just pray that you would bring them encouragement. Lord, help them to stand firm. Lord, help them to, to resist the lion that prowls and roars around them. Lord, I pray that for ourselves as well. Lord, that our hearts would be humble to know that, wow, my God cares for me. In fact, he cares for me so much that he cares for me more than, than sometimes I have the ability to care for myself. 
And that takes humility. And Father, help us to, to put on that, that apron of service, that apron of humility, that we might be recognized by our, by our humility in, in our world, by our graciousness, by our kindness, by our compassion. And Father, I pray that, that we would just continue to, to cast our cares upon you, Lord, that we're not carrying around things that are going to continue to distract us and destroy us, but, Father, that we would trust you with these. And, Lord, that our focus, our minds would be focused, our faces set on Jesus. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for this letter that we've been able to learn from and be encouraged by. Father, help us to continually pursue and press into Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.